The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We have seen a downward trend, if that seems like a euphemism or an understa- a huge understatement, a downward trend in freedom of speech and the press in Russia in uh, recent years from the laws introduced uh, labeling independent media as uh, some as extremists, some as foreign agents, squeezing the space completely up until the point of the outbreak of war, the start of Russia's invasion of its neighbor, um, leading uh, so many Russian reporters to be forced to leave the country and leaving a very, very small amount of people still able to work and to report on the ground in Russia, most of them foreign correspondents. So uh, the space for free reporting in Russia had squeezed already. So if you're looking for a trend, there is one there for sure. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 24th, 2023. Evan Gershkovich has been in Russian detention for the last several weeks. He is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and he is the latest American taken hostage by the Vladimir Putin regime. His good friend Polina Ivanova is a reporter for the Financial Times, a colleague of Evan's in Russia, and has been an outspoken advocate for his release She joined me from Berlin in the Virtual Jungle studio to talk about Evan, who he is, why he has been detained by the Russians, what we know about his conditions in prison, and what it will take to get him home. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 24th, Polina Ivanova on Evan Gershkovich's detention. Okay, so I want to start with how you know Evan and uh, how you came to know him. You've been speaking a great deal about him in public and advocating for his release. Tell me about the nature of your relationship with him. Sure. So um, Evan and I both arrived to Russia around about the same time, towards the end of 2017, uh, both coming to Russia to take up our first jobs as reporters on the ground. For him, it was a case of taking a kind of risky bet to uh, leave an entry-level position at the New York Times, you know, something that lots of people fight for. And he took a risk to um, go across the world to Russia and uh, work for a local paper. 
and started a job at the Moscow Times. And I was also starting my first journalism job. So those first uh, years, we I mean, we quickly became friends um, in this environment and sort of were chasing after the same stories together and learning the ropes of uh, career in journalism around about the same time and the same place. I mean, the Moscow Press Corps is a very um, small and, and tight-knit community. You go through a lot of stuff. Yeah, so I think that's that's kind of the story of how we, we got to know each other. And um, then it was many years of, yeah, reporting on the same stuff, going to protests, covering protests together, covering the same trials, the same um, events during the pandemic, and then, of course, the uh, the start of the war. And when did you leave Moscow? I think the last time we spoke, you were in Paris, and now you're in Berlin, but you're you have not regarded it as safe for you in Moscow, I take it. No, that's not quite right. I mean, it's a very complicated assessment to make all the time. Um, I actually covered the outbreak of the war in Kiev. Uh, I was working in Ukraine at the beginning of the invasion. And then I was, yes, in Paris when we spoke in lots of different places and subsequently went back to Moscow on reporting trips. Um, my latest one was in February. I see. So you've been kind of in and out of the country for since the beginning of the war? Yes, uh, though um, not immediately because it was a shock initially for everyone and also forced a sort of reassessment of the security situation. These laws were brought in right, uh, I think, on day two or day three of the war, which criminalized a lot of different kinds of speech around the war, including the use of the word war itself, as many people listening here will know, and forced a massive exodus of Russian journalists from the country, and then also caused a lot of foreign correspondents to reassess their own security as well, because it was a very unclear situation. So at the beginning, everybody was sort of finding their feet, and Evan was one of the first people to uh, go back for the Western press. He went back to report in Moscow, um, in the summer of 2022 and then started, well, stayed on there basically or started staying for long stints and reporting because he felt that it was his duty to do so for as long as that was possible. Um, one of his st- first stories, um, his return was about this kind of strange normality of life in Moscow, sort of four months or so, I think it was, into the war where people, young people are going to bars and um, kind of continuing to live their lives and the war feels very far away and the kind of strange absurdity of that. It was a very poignant report. Yeah, so when he went back uh, and stayed on a long-term basis, did you have the sense that he understood that as a risk or that he assessed that it was safe to do and that, you know, whatever they would do, arresting Western reporters for major news outlets uh, was not within their hostage playbook? How, how, did, how, to the best of your understanding, how did he understand the risk that he was taking? Everybody is constantly calculating the risks. Obviously, they're there, um, and everybody was taking them seriously. Evan um, was very aware of of the difficulties of reporting in Russia, the challenges, um, and something that we talked about all the time. It's really, you know, top of topic of conversation number one among um, among reporters covering this story. And um, 
Evan was very aware of the risk. He had spoken about being followed on, on reporting trips. This was something quite new. And it was, yeah, something that hadn't really happened before the war. But um, this is, of course, a very difficult situation to assess. And uh, this red line has never been crossed before. The red line of, of targeting a Western journalist or a journalist for the foreign press in general is something that... Um, has not happened, uh, as you know, since the Cold War. So this was a very, this is a very, very different situation. Yeah, very different situation indeed. So talk to us about the circumstances of his arrest. There has been uh, a fair bit of reporting that it had to do with the nature of the, the story that he had just written. Why Evan and... Uh, was there a substantive reason for it? I mean, I, not that he had done anything wrong, but was there was there a particular sensitivity about the material that he was reporting, or was he more of a target of opportunity? I think it's really hard to speculate, right? It's really hard to know what um, what the Kremlin is thinking. Um, there's been strong reporting from Bloomberg that this uh, case has been directed from the very top. By which you mean Vladimir Putin. By which, yeah, I mean Vladimir Putin. Um, there was a good report on that in Bloomberg, citing high-level sources. Um, it's very, yeah, it's very hard to it's very hard to know. It's a it's a case of espionage, um, according to uh, the Russian state, which means that it's a closed case, which means there is no uh, information um, about what bogus charges are being pinned on him. Um, they are not being disclosed. There's been nothing. The first trial was completely closed to the public. We've just seen an appeal happen um, on Tuesday, which related to uh, the uh, pre-trial detention in which Evan would be held, whether it would be the Lefort of a prison in Moscow or another place, you know, such as house arrest. Um, that was public for a few minutes so that some images of Evan could be seen and so that the judge could read out the verdict, but the whole substantive, even part of that trial, which is just about where his pretrial detention would be held, um, was closed as well. So we really don't have very many details of the case at all. Now, this sounds like a ridiculous question to ask, but I'm going to put it out there. The CIA's policy is that it does not use uh, journalists anymore for espionage and hasn't since, I think, the, se- the early 70s. Do you have any doubt that Evan was simply a journalist and not an intelligence operative on some country's behalf? There's obviously no doubt at all. Evan is a journalist. Evan is a journalist for the Wall Street Journal. Um, he's an accredited journalist with the, uh, by the Russian, accredited by the Russian Foreign Ministry, working completely openly, publishing his material and uh, and and working for years honestly and fairly covering the Russian story. This is the thing that makes it almost um, the most upsetting is that. Evan has always dedicated so much time uh, to treating this story with care, to revealing the real nuances of the Russian story, to not um, report within simple stereotypes, to not paint it as a, yeah, to not to not just rely on stereotypes, to really get into the nuances and the nitty gritty of the Russian story and, and to tell it in all its kind of grayscale and all of its depth. 
and to really uh, make readers, uh, to force readers to kind of come to terms with that. Um, right from the start, even when he was working at a domestic local paper at the Moscow Times, he was writing um, in this way and and not in a simple way about Russia, but in a complex and caring and nuanced way, which just makes it all the more upsetting that that all of that work done with care as an honest journalist, as a very careful journalist on Russia, would have been ignored. And characterized in some sense anyway as espionage. I mean, the charges are bogus. So talk about the state of the case. Uh, There's a pretrial detention order at this stage. The trial itself is closed. What does uh, the defense of Evan look like as a practical matter? Is it do you think of it chiefly as a uh, as a set of legal proceedings or chiefly as a set of uh, as a you know political advocacy matter that uh, the United States has to take up as a diplomatic question but the law of Russia is utterly irrelevant to how it proceeds I mean you yeah you, the, the question is a very apt one um Look, the, the the case itself is important. We we don't know very much about it. Um, we know that uh, the pretrial detention appeal was rejected, and so Evan will remain in Lefortova prison um, in his cell until the trial begins, um, or at least the next uh, the next proper hearing, which will be on the 29th of May, if I'm not mistaken, the very last days of May, and and so that's another you know, more than a month away, um, in which time Evan will spend alone in Lefortova prison. That's pretty much all that we know of the case. And to be honest, the Russian judicial system, I think in, I think the, the defendant is found guilty in something like 99% of cases. I'm going to get my stats wrong. But the, the point is that the political process and the uh, campaign in defense of Evan and to get him released is of huge importance. Um, it is, again, hard to know exactly what the uh, Russian state wants, but we have seen reports in the media of uh, members of the Russian foreign ministry talking about uh, political prison exchange. You've seen Margarita Simonyan, the, the uh, sort of chief propagandist on, on, uh, on Russian television or one of, talking about the possibility of an exchange. So clearly, if it's in the kind of Russian dialogue, then this is something that is that is really being considered, which means that there will be, a, you know, that the political process is important as well. Also very important is the campaign. Yeah, so let's talk about the political process, uh, the diplomatic side of it. The Russians have had no small success over the last several years in, you know, basically charging U.S. uh, what are essentially hostages uh, from Paul Whelan to Brittany Griner on trumped up charges and then leveraging them for, you know, genuine criminals that are part of the regime in one sense or another that the United States has arrested and prosecuted. I mean, is your instinct that this is essentially part of that operation and this is that we should think of Evan as roughly the same way we think of Brittany Griner, just in a different profession? 
or do do you think of it more as a targeted attack on journalism about Russia? In other words, is this a is this directed against the United States? We arrest your arms dealers. Okay, in response, we we arrest your basketball players and your journalists. Or is this directed at the press or both? I think um, again, this is this is it's 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 hard to know exactly what um, you know. We spent a lot of time on Kremlinology and trying to read between the lines and and and, and working out what um, what is going on. But um, I think my my gut instinct is that it's uh, in some ways a bit of both. So. Um, we have seen a downward trend, if that seems like a euphemism or an understate, a huge understatement, a downward trend in freedom of speech and the press in Russia in uh, recent years from the laws introduced, uh, labeling independent media as uh, some as extremists, some as foreign agents, squeezing the space completely up until the point of the outbreak of war, the start of Russia's invasion of its neighbor, um, leading uh, so many Russian reporters to be forced to leave the country and leaving a very, very small amount of people still able to work and to report on the ground in Russia, most of them foreign correspondents. So uh, the space for free reporting in Russia had squeezed already. So if you're looking for a trend, there is one there for sure. Um, similarly, there is a trend towards hostage diplomacy. So, you know, I'm, if we're going to call Evan anything, I'm confident in calling him a hostage there is this trend towards towards hostage diplomacy where we see that um as you mentioned Brittany Griner a basketball player is held and then exchanged for a uh, known arms dealer Victor Bout and this uh is happening not just in Russia in other countries as well as a sort of something of a of a trend and um it's kind of ironic or not ironic is probably the wrong word but saddening just that one of the stories that evan wrote and worked on was right right at the beginning of his career at the wall street journal which he started quite recently was to write about britney griner's case for the journal so there's something of a of a you know continuity in these in these cases unfortunately so if we follow the continuity of these cases to its logical conclusion, the Russian pattern in these cases, at least as I can decipher it, is you trade after you convict, right? You you convict Brittany Griner, you sentence Brittany Griner uh, so that you've legitimized the hostage taking uh, or at least insofar as the Russian judicial system can legitimize uh, itself, and then you conduct the negotiation, that would suggest that we, you know, probably have a few months before we're going to get uh, a realist, realistically uh, a serious discussion about, you know, a possible prisoner exchange or or whatever one wants to call it. Do you have any sense of who the Russians want in exchange for Evan? Oh, there've been lots of names floated around. I mean, I don't know from, um, from there've been no names in any kind of official Russian statements. There's just been speculation in largely the, the foreign media, in fact, about, about this. I mean, 
the if i'm if i'm not mistaken the the exchange that simanyan had floated was to swap assange for for um evan and a few others so uh really there's uh, there's been some there's been all sorts of all sorts of chatter it's it's hard to know uh what exactly again is is on their minds um but if this is a case of aiming for an exchange then there are candidates that have been you know the reporting has shown that there are candidates for such an exchange that could be potentially of interest in in the US and in other countries um uh, but uh, i would point out that on the on the timeline that you mentioned i mean you're you're very right um in the in recent history we've seen that this kind of conversation only starts in you know it starts in full after a conviction uh, we saw that in the wheeling case we well um, or we believe that a conversation is happening around that, and we saw that happen after the Brittany Griner case. So um, there is this need for a conviction f- first before anything can proceed. We're quite sort of heartened to see things moving relatively quickly in terms of on the US side and seeing that Evan was labelled wrongfully detained very quickly, which was a real, um, you know, which was really great and heartening to see. So uh, on the U.S. side, um, things are moving pretty swiftly for, for Evan. How long a process of conviction might take in, in Russia, it's it's really hard to know how, how whether they'll want to play this trial out, whether they'll want to extend it. It's difficult to say. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. 
All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code lawfare20. 
Yeah, so the other variable on the U.S. side that uh, sometimes precipitates very quick uh, prisoner exchanges is the capture of people that the Russians care about. So I forget how many days it took the Obama administration to uh, arrange a trade after the capture of the illegals in 2010. That's the, for those who don't know, that's the case on which the uh, series The Americans is uh, very, very loosely based. But it was a very short time. And I I do wonder whether uh, this case, given Evans' profile and the relationship between, you know, the, 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 the fact that the U.S. administration, as much as it cares about basketball players and celebrities, which is a real thing, the need to defend the international press is a higher order concern, whether you might see a roll up of something that they've been watching for a long time by way of gaining themselves leverage for a conversation mm-hmm. about this that can can take place much faster because you hold, you're holding somebody the Russians actually care about. I mean, there's, there has been talk of, of different candidates, um, in the U S um, this guy Klusen comes to mind. Um, but I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert on who they may be wanting to swap and, and how many people, uh, the U S is holding that, that could be of interest. Um, there have been candidates named related to Slovakia, related to Germany. All sorts have been reported in um, in the press. So it's definitely something that we're all closely watching because, of course, you know, if there is an exchange, if that is what where we're headed, then um, the sooner that can be achieved, the better. And um, you know, we saw it took ten months in the Brittany Griner case. You know, who knows how long this will take. So you have had some contact with, or the, his family has had some contact with Evan. Tell us about what we know about how he's doing and what he has had to say from Lefortova. Of course. So, um, yes, uh, we have been running this letter writing campaign. So we've been sending Evan lots and lots of letters, um, hundreds from people around the world, which is a huge, huge thing to support him. Um, and do we know that he receives them? Yes, we know. And he's also replied to us. Um, so he's written a letter to his family. Um, he's written several letters to his friends. Um in his letters, in his first letter to us, he wrote about how important it is for him to receive this correspondence. Uh, he wrote about how, you know, it's um, one thing, you know, we've all read the tales of Russian political prisoners who say that it's, you know, brings you a lot of joy um, to receive letters, but he said until you've actually become one yourself, it's hard to describe the kind of ne- next level happiness, as I think is the words he used to um to receive those, uh, to receive that correspondence. Um, journalists from around the world have been writing, his friends, acquaintances, family, and just people um, from uh, across the States, um, well-wishers, people who want to tell him that they support him have been writing, and that's been a huge deal for him. I think, so initially we had no contact with him, and then 
the first thing we heard was, I think, on the third or fourth day of his detention, some prisoner monitors came to visit Evan. And we heard from them a little bit about his conditions, what he was able to tell them. At the time, he was being kept alone in a cell um, and he was kind of fine with the food. Um, things obviously are difficult, but um, he was very upbeat. He was joking around with everyone. The I think the prison monitors were actually just sort of sort of baffled by the fact that his uh, character was so strong and that he was being that he was being funny and everything. So um, that was very uh, uplifting to hear. Um, it was also uplifting to know that um, he had accessed a book in the prison library that he hadn't finished reading before his detention. He was reading this, we were on holiday together before, and uh, he was reading this very massive book called Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman about the uh, Second World War, um, a Ukrainian-born writer. Um, I was sort of thinking that it's going to be, I bet he hasn't finished reading it by the time that he was detained. And it was just very um, wonderful to see that, uh, to find out that he'd got the book. And then I wrote about that actually on Twitter and someone replied saying, you know, I'm going to tell the translator of the book. And a few days later, we see that the translator of the book wrote a letter to Evan saying, you know, this I'm the translator of the book that you're reading. And um, his name is uh, Robert Chandler. And um, that, you know, these are all the reasons why it's such a pertinent book to, to the age and to Russia at the moment and to you. And, you know, I've been with it, this text for 40 years. Let's discuss it. And it was very um, heartening. And now we are sending, um, we're able to send him books sometimes and uh, all sorts of other things to support him, sort of basic goods stuff. And uh, he's now moved on to war and peace, we found out from the lawyers on the courtroom steps, which uh, is also great. Um one of the books that he requested and uh, we posted to him. So you mentioned the lawyers on the courtroom steps. Uh, who are his lawyers? Are they lawyers who he retained? Are they lawyers that the family hired or are they state assigned lawyers? When you're, when you're a hostage in the Russian judicial system, who represents you? Um, he has lawyers. So initially, when on the first day of his arrest, when he was first brought to Moscow, um, he had a state-appointed lawyer for that first hearing. Um, that was on the very first sort of hours of his arrest. There was this closed trial um, or a closed courtroom session where uh, he w was represented by a state-appointed lawyer. But after that, he has since been represented by his uh, Russian lawyers who are uh, hired by his employer. Gotcha. So tell us a little about his background. He's a, he was, as I understand it, from a Russian emigre family in the United States, but he has sort of substantial ties in, in Russia that are, you know, uh, quite deep. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, um, uh, Evan, is the child of emigres from the Soviet Union uh, coming from uh, Odessa in um, Ukraine, then in the Soviet Union, and from St. Petersburg, and also that side of the family has links to Donetsk as well, so from all over. And uh, they're Soviet emigres, uh, Jewish emigres who left with the Jewish area, with the Jewish immigration wave in 1979, first to sort of briefly to Europe and then onwards to the US 
for those who are not familiar with the history of Russian Jewish immigration, uh, 1979 was the peak year in the Soviet government's allowance of uh, Jews to leave the Soviet Union. Uh, I forget what the numbers were, but they were quite large that year. And then it collapsed after the invasion of Afghanistan when the United States responded uh, quite, you know, quite aggressively and boycotted the Olympics and the Russians basically cut off the spigot after 1979. Yeah, it was a very big, um, it was very important. Um, it was very important for, for lots of people to be able to leave. It was a great chance for a lot of people to leave the Soviet Union um, and, uh, you know, a very rare and difficult chance to leave the Soviet Union. And uh, I know that his parents had to really uh, struggle to get the paperwork and to be able to, to go. This was a very sort of uh, important moment. And it was also very supported by um, Jewish immigrants already in um, the US, uh, kind of Soviet dissidents in who had who had relocated. And it's kind of a big cultural moment in, in Soviet history as well. And um, yeah, so his parents arrived in the US and they met there, began working as programmers. And um, uh, Evan grew up in uh, New Jersey, the sort of with speaking Russian at home, speaking English with in most of in most of his life, but kind of brought up on uh, Russian and Soviet cooking at home. He made a lot of jokes about that on in his letter to his parents um, about kind of being brought up on kasha on on porridge in the mornings and this kind of thing, and then having to eat that now in prison. And uh, yeah, so and he had a yeah he he wrote a nice sort of first person account of what his Russian identity means and sort of thinking about that through cooking or, or um, through his mother's recipes and and through um, just Soviet cartoons and that kind of thing that he was brought up with. And then moving back to Russia, that was obviously or moving to Russia for the for the first time to live there was obviously kind of a chance to explore all of that um, for him as well, um, both sort of Ukrainian heritage, Russian heritage, um, and sort of the general kind of history of the, the historical Soviet experience and how that affected his parents um, and helped him, I think, uh, understand them as well a bit better. So all of that makes him sound like an almost inexplicable target. On the one hand, you've described a, a particularly sensitive and you know, non-ideological reporter who yeah. is writing in about the complexity of the situation. You have somebody who is actually there because he is, among other things, in addition to being a reporter, exploring some aspect of his own heritage and background. And all of that leads me back to the question that I, I know you don't have an answer for, but I'm curious for your thoughts on, which is why him? It's just, it's just so very hard to know. Um, it's very hard to know. Um, and it, again, is just a very upsetting point for those very reasons that um, this is someone that has always approached the story with so much care and has always, you know, tried to also report from all corners of Russia, the idea um, of sitting in Moscow and just telling Russia's story from Moscow was never something that he was comfortable with. Um, 
it doesn't surprise me that he was traveling the country in this time as well um, and this year and last year because this is something that um, he really believed in the importance of doing. He had great stories from all over, whether it was sort of sleeping by a campfire in Yakutia in the far east, uh, sorry, in, in Siberia or um to cover the wildfires there or traveling to Khabarovsk in the far east to cover a massive protest there that were happening. He went all over the country because he really believed in the importance of kind of letting uh, Russians speak with their own voice and, 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 and to tell their stories and try and deepen our understanding of what's going on in Russia. So it's, it's for that reason, very upsetting indeed. And um, why him, you know, if it is a, if it is a hostage uh, taking situation, does it matter who it is? I don't. I, I don't know. Um, on the other hand, if it is to clamp down on even further on a on a on the free press and the work of the free press in Russia, if that's one of the, as you suggest, potentially one of the um, reasons for it, then you know that's. Uh, he was working incredibly well in in Russia and and uh, doing very very important and very unique work, telling its story during the time of war. So. He was also playing an important role in that way. So I'm, I'm curious about your own risk assessment. You at the beginning of this conversation, you said that you had been under, uh, you'd been back uh, to Moscow a number of times for reporting trips since the start of the war. How would you assess your own risk today in light of what happened to Evan? Would you would you go back for a reporting trip? Uh, under these circumstances, or is that unthinkable? I don't know yet. Um, I haven't had time to stop and make the assessment yet. I've been um, thinking to, I mean, we've just been on a absolute sort of roller coaster with this arrest and with trying to get everything in place and sort of yeah, just doing the campaigning, doing these letters, doing everything. I have not even stopped to think yet about this uh, question. It's definitely an important one. It's um, I know that a lot of people are thinking about this. Some of the I understand the American press pulled their you know they publicly spoke about how they pulled their correspondence from Russia uh, for the time being. Everybody will be making this assessment. It's obviously had a chilling effect for everyone. I have not yet even stop to think about it at the moment. It's been too much going on, unfortunately. So before I let you go, I'll talk for a minute about the United States response. Uh, the administration was quick to uh, label him wrongfully detained, which is something that, you know, the, the government does relatively cautiously. Are there things the the U.S. administration the State Department haven't done that they should be doing, or or is this a situation where you know everybody's doing the right thing uh, and doing what they can, but at the end of the day, this you know nobody has control over this situation except the Russian authorities. I mean, I don't have much visibility. In fact, very few people I think have much visibility on what happens um, in these processes from a political point of view. Um, I understand that from reading a lot of um, what it, people have been writing who have gone through this experience, um, uh, Jason Rosean, um, David Rode, people have been, who, journalists who have been targeted and held hostage by um, groups or states in, in the past have, have um, been very kindly kind of offering 
advice and writing about Evan's case and kind of sharing their own experiences. And one of the things that you understand from that is that um, it is a very closed process, the negotiation process, if it starts, you know, or entirely the, the sort of political process is very, uh, it's a very closed one, even um, for those closest to, to Evan, which sometimes becomes difficult, I, from what I understand from past, uh, from reading these past experiences, becomes even difficult for families and that kind of thing, because of how, how little can be shared about it. It's very sort of, very sensitive thing. But so we can only see some sort of public moves. Um, they have seemed to be really quick and great as I was talking about this um, wrongfully detained designation um, happened very swiftly there does seem to be um, a lot of attention um, we can only call for more attention to this case um, we see that uh, Joe Biden has called Evan's mother to to have a conversation with the family um, and, and spoken about his you know dedication to this case so we you know we sort of have kind of what we know right um hopefully that kind of pace will continue if listeners want to participate in your letter writing campaign where can they find information about it and how can they get involved yes i would really call on people to do that um you can email us. Um, we have set up a, a, an account. Um, it's freegershkovich at gmail.com. So it's free, F-R-E-E, and then Gershkovich, Evan's surname, at gmail.com. And we read that uh, inbox. There's three or four journalists working on this. Um, we translate everything to Russian. We then um, post these letters to Lefortova prison in Russia, and uh, follow all the procedures. They go through the prison sensor and reach Evan and he reads them. And I think it takes something like 10 or so days for, for a letter to reach him. But um, there are many, many coming and it's, uh, and it's really fantastic. It's a, it's, it's a, I really uh, recommend people to do that. Um, it's also, you know, if, if people are thinking about what to write, words of support obviously are, are great. There's also, you know, if you have, uh, he's a big Arsenal fan. He's a huge fan of cooking. He's a fantastic chef. People are writing to him with stories of their kind of experiences in Moscow in the past or other journalists are telling him stories and, and things like that. So just uh, some people have even sent puzzles, um, though we don't recommend that because uh, <laughs> not sure how the prison authorities would look on that. But but yeah, really uh, call on people to to take part. It's um, freegershkovich at gmail.com uh, is the best way to contact us. So tell me, uh, how do you think the prison authorities would respond if a if somebody were to send him a photograph of a projection onto the Russian embassy in Washington of a call to free him? I actually, I, I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> um, I try and we try and enter kind of their minds sometimes to, to see what, um, uh, how to approach certain things with, with letters, but you know, who knows? Images do go through, though. So it's uh, images do go through, and we are trying to send him messages of support. There is a great image, for example, from the Wall Street Journal newsroom, and the Wall Street Journal has been doing amazing work to campaign for Evan, and and more than just a campaign. And uh, there's this great image from their newsroom of their entire 
staff wearing t-shirts in support of Evan and and with um, his picture and just showing their support. I know that a friend of mine who's um, studying in Boston was running through through Boston, I think it was, on a jog and saw people kind of protesting in those t-shirts and took a picture. We've sent him that, you know, this kind of thing. So, so we do try and convey to him just how much the world is watching his case. Well, somebody uh, may engage in such a projection uh, <laughs> over the next uh, couple of weeks. And if such a projection were to happen, I, I suspect uh, a image of it might, might come your way. Fascinating. I have no idea. <laughs> a mystery. <laughs> We're going to leave it there. Uh, Felina, thank you so much for joining us today. And best of luck in this, uh, in this campaign and in talking about Evan and in helping him come home. Thank you so much for, for taking the time as well. Thanks for your interest in this. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the great Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our promotion department is you, the listener. So please do what you can to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Share it on Facebook, on Twitter, if Twitter still exists. I wouldn't know. I've been banned on TikTok, share it on Pinterest, share it on Reddit. Just keep talking everywhere about the Lawfare podcast and of course rate and review us wherever you found us. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.